0: Now that Germany and the Central Powers are losing, they are begging for an armistice. Their request is an acknowledgment of weakness and clearly means that the Allies are winning the war. That is the best of reasons for our pushing the war more vigorously at this moment. Germany's desire is only to gain time to restore order among her forces, but she must be given no opportunity to recuperate and we must strike harder than ever. Our strong blows are telling, and continuous pressure by us has compelled the enemy to meet us, enabling our allies to gain on other parts of the line. There can be no conclusion to this war until Germany is brought to her knees. Pershing. General John J. Pershing, Commander, American Expeditionary Force, from his memoir, My Experiences in the World War. Hey folks, welcome to the Battles of the First World War podcast, episode 92, Continuous Pressure. All right, we are back, and it's good to be back with you. I've researched and written this episode while I'm still on vacation. Can you guys believe it? Back home, but still on vacation. So I've been able to pretend that I'm a full-time writer all week. It's been a lot of fun, and I know but I do have a good amount of focus left in me. I can do it. Let's kick it off with Patreon shoutouts. There are several. So, shoutouts to Peter, Christopher, Adam, Connor, William, and Chris F from the UK. Thank you all so very much for your support for the podcast. Greatly appreciated. Patreon pitch As patrons on Patreon, you will be helping to financially support the podcast. As thanks, you will have early access to all new episodes, as well as transcripts and bibliographies for those episodes. Patrons also have other perks, such as extra episodes that have not yet been released. If this sounds interesting to you, check us out on patreon.com backslash Battles of the First World War podcast, Patronage of the BFWWP can begin with as little as a dollar per episode, and it is greatly appreciated. Patrons are only charged when a new episode is released. Shout out to listener Wyatt, who told me that the BFWWP made a recent long car ride much more enjoyable. Super glad to hear that, man. Also, many thanks for the book. It's beautiful. It's also been a while because Rob and I did another tour in the meuse in July and it was another unforgettable week with some unforgettable people. Seriously, I think when we have these tours, there are friendships that are forged and it is an immensely rewarding experience. It's always a gift to be able to be back in France walking where our Duel Boys walked and it is a greater one and we can walk that ground with others who share that same passion. The tours are also something more than a week walking in the woods and seeing hills and old trenches and monuments. I can't say it any better than friend, listener, and guest John said it in a recent email to Rob and me. Quote, I cannot call the week spent with these gentlemen a tour. This is a unique experience that is more akin to a summer vacation spent with uncles and cousins. I liken it to a family reunion of sorts with the exchange of stories, interests, good food, and better company. The schedule was malleable and easily adjusted to each person's interest. A tailorable agenda is unique to this group, and its strength is reinforced by the personalities of its hosts. A coveted personal experience I recommend with only praise— And remain privileged to have participated. End quote. I mean, wow. Thank you, John. Folks, Rob and I are already planning next year's tour. If this sounds like something you would like to join, shoot us an email at lostbattaliontours at gmail.com. You'll be on our contact list and you'll be first to hear when we announce our next week in the Murs-Argonne. So, I think that about wraps up our admin notes, okay? So, let's get back to the front line. Last episode, we looked at the American Air Service, its strategy and operations during the Murs-Argonne Offensive. Before that, we looked at the state of the German army with Randy Golke, and at Hunter Liggett taking over the AEF's First Army. When Liggett assumed command, he instituted an operational pause. First Army was battered and nearly broken, and Liggett needed to get it into shape for the next strike on the Germans. So for the last two weeks of October 1918, First Army went into an overall halt to its large scale and continuous attacks, focusing instead on desperately retraining and sometimes straight up training its raw replacements. Rest, food, and adequate supplies were also priorities. Local combat operations within division sectors didn't stop, however. General Liggett still needed these smaller-scale attacks to continue so that jump-off points for the next big attack were secured beforehand. Looking at the 1st Army front from left to right, we'll start with 1st Corps. Now positioned at the north end of the Argonne Forest and adjacent Air River Valley, the incoming 78th Lightning Division was to take the small town of Grand Prey just north of the Argonne, and the heights to its own immediate north. In the center of the First Army front, Fifth and Third Corps were to push north from the areas of Romagne soumont Faucon and Canel villages, towards Banteville and Oncreville. In this area they were to seize and hold several woods the Bois de Rap, the Bois de Clerchain, all of the Bois de Banteville, and the Cote de Chatillon, as we saw in an earlier episode, the Côte de Châtillon had already been seized by regiments of the 42nd Division. Across the river Meuse to the east, the French 17th Corps, staffed mostly by American divisions, was to continue to attack into the Meuse Heights and draw German reserves away from the 5th and 3rd Corps areas. Each Corps had its mission. South of Grand Pre, Lieutenant Frederick Tillman of the 1st Battalion, 307th Infantry Regiment, 77th Division, had steadily crossed the river Aire with his men on the night of the 15th to 16th October. Yes, the 77th Division, the one with the lost battalion and the one that had fought its way through much of the Argonne Forest, was still in the fight. Tillman and his doughboys laid low as another group silently killed German outpost sentries. Once that grisly work was done, Tillman and his other officers got the men moving into Grand Pré itself. As it comes on line with the northern end of the Aragon, the river air turns west-northwest and runs between Grand Pré and the forest. The village itself is roughly shaped like a lazy jay lying backwards and on its back, if you can imagine that. The entire J is the D946 road, and the hook end of the J is more open as it curves and runs to the north. The line of the J, running east-west, forms the main road through the village. As far as villages in the Meuse region go, Grand Prix is a sizable one. The village is built under a hill known as the Burgundy Nose, and a part of that hill pushes into the town itself. In G.R. Morgan's 1919 memoir titled, Company E, 312th Infantry, 78th Division in France, May 19, 1918 to May 31st, 1919, the Burgundy Nose is described as, quote, about 15 feet above street level with almost perpendicular sides. The strip of land reaches a point about the center of the town and becomes wider as it joins the burgundy nose. That portion in the town had stone walls upon the top about eight feet high. It can be, therefore, understood how this citadel, named thusly by our battalion, controlled the entire country to the east, south, and west. The Burgundy Nose was heavily wooded and also controlled all approaches across the Air Valley. A little to the west of Burgundy Nose, about one kilometer, rises another steep wooded hill known as Talma Hill, connecting with Burgundy Nose by woods, bending in a crescent shape to the north and on a slightly higher elevation than Grand Pre. That street, which was on the east of the Citadel, podcaster note, I believe that's the D-946 as it runs north today, had few houses upon it due to the fact that it was close to both the citadel and the river running between the two, End quote. Lieutenant Tillman and his troops snuck into the streets of Grand Prix, capturing some Germans who were caught completely surprised. The Americans were setting up an outpost in the town itself when a German soldier just happened to walk by them. What developed then and throughout the rest of the day was a wild street battle where the doughboys fought house to house against the Germans. At the end of the day, the main square, the roads leading east and south, and the rail station had been secured by the Americans. The Germans had been bombed and shot out of cellars and streets, pulled back and up into the citadel. From there, they could not be budged for the time being. Lieutenant Tillman and his men were soon relieved by the 78th Division, who promptly went on the attack. The 78th Division, made up of selective servicemen from Delaware, New Jersey, New York, New England, and Illinois, had seen some combat during the San Miguel Drive, and while holding the new line there after that salient had been eliminated. Despite that limited experience, and perhaps because of it, it went on to the attack on the 16th with little preparation. According to the ABMC Summary of Operations for the 78th, quote, brigade zones of action were prescribed, but the units were not assigned objectives, quote. The booklet also states that the night of the 15th to the 16th of October, when relief of the 77th Division began, was, quote, dark and rainy, the 78th Division was new to the area, and many commanders were without maps. Contradictory orders were issued as to routes of advance so that guides dispatched by the 77th Division in some instances went to the wrong locations. The result was considerable confusion and delay in the relief. End quote. But it went in with four regiments on line anyway. On the right, positioned in the air valley east of Grand Prix, the men of the 309th and 310th Infantry Regiments managed to push about one kilometer north to a line parallel with Hill 182, a hill north of Saint-Juvon village to the east that had just been taken by the 82nd Division. On the 78th Division's far left, the 312th Infantry was late in jumping off. So the 311th on its right, attacked into Grand Prix on its own. Barnard Eberlin's 1919 History of the 311th Infantry, 78th Division, essentially a dry, if factual, collection of field orders and map coordinates, stated that, quote, "...the attack was actually commenced at 630 hours without any artillery barrage, but accompanied by counter-battery artillery fire." However, no advance could be made owing to hostile shelling and machine gun fire. The enemy withdrew to crest of ridge north of Air River. End quote. This ridge is likely the Burgundy Nose, where sat the citadel in Grand Pre. Later in the day, the men of the 312th took over in the village. Now began a fight to take Grand Pre and the ground to its north. The Germans, of course, were going to fight for every inch of ground. Facing the 78th were three German divisions, the 195th to the west of Grand Prix, the 76th reserve division in the village itself, and the 2nd Landwehr division to the east. The last two divisions were veteran Argonne fighters who had had plenty of experience slugging it out with Lieutenant Colonel Charles Whittlesey and his lost battalion, as well as the rest of the 77th and 28th Divisions. A storm of combat whirled around Grand Pre over the next several days. On the 17th, the Americans continued to push across the Air River east of the town. The Germans responded with constant barrages of high explosive and gas shells, and gas casualties within the ranks of the 78th were numerous. Many of the men who'd crossed the Air River had their protective mask filters soaked, which rendered them useless, and they hadn't been replaced in time. There was also the fact that many American soldiers simply weren't used to operating in a chemical environment, and they sadly paid for it. On the 18th, the 78th went at it again. U.S. artillery, steadily gaining in strength, proficiency, and ammunition stocks, plastered the German lines with phosgene gas. West of Grand Telma Talma Farm to the northwest was attacked. The French on the left had taken and lost the farm once already, and now the doughboys had a go at it. They failed in this attempt as well, under heavy fire. East of Grand the Doughboys rushed into the Bois de Loge, northeast of the village, one of the key areas needing to be captured for the next main attack. In the town itself, E Company, 312th Infantry, went after the citadel where the Germans were holding up all attempts to progress forward. From Morgan's history of that company, orders were received for one platoon to advance up the east side of the citadel, So in the early hours of daylight, October 18th, the 3rd platoon under Lieutenant H.A. Lewis advanced from house to house under machine gun and grenade fire to the last house where they organized strongly. More orders were received on the 18th relative to the reduction of the citadel. Two parties were to attack on each side of the citadel following a most heavy barrage, Captain Morgan was given charge of this mission, and 40 men and one officer from each of Companies E and F were to comprise the raiding parties. According to plans, the entire battalion withdrew about 10 p.m. to the western side of the town for this heavy barrage to start at 12 midnight. The Hun put a good shoot on where we were dug in, but made no hits. At the zero hour, 2 a.m., the advance was begun, but to our astonishment we saw no marks of heavy shell fire. However, up the streets we went, doing as we had been ordered, though knowing we could not reach our objective. Suddenly, the machine gun located at the intersection of the river and the road opened fire down the street. Then those in the citadel began firing, and hand grenades were dropped in the street. We were caught. However, Private Gilson later sergeant, crawled up very close and with two hand grenades, silenced the gun firing down the street. Captain Morgan ordered the platoon back to the old position of the third platoon. The failure of this raid is stated in division history as being due to inaccuracy of the artillery fire. No casualties resulted," End quote. Fighting would continue on the 19th for the same areas. AEF artillery pounded the Bois de Loges and the Ferme de Lauge throughout the night, inflicting a great deal of suffering upon the defending German front camper. To the east of Grand Pre, American artillery soaked the village of Champignol with phosgene and Iperit gas, which then spread west through German lines. On the 19th, the 311th Infantry took the Ferme de Loges farm complex, which was well-positioned between Bois de Loges to its east and the southern end of Bois de Bourgogne to its west. In Grand Prix, the citadel, too, was plastered with gas. Yet, the German defenders held off all American assaults that day. To the west, Telma Farm was wrenched from German hands. It went on and on, attack and counterattack, always under the thunder of the guns and amidst the screaming furies of shells and the silent terror of poison gas. On the 23rd, after every available gun in the division poured shells into the citadel, the 312th attacked again in a ruthless and enraged manner that, quote, could have been led by Richard the Lionhearted with a battleaxe, end quote. With captured prisoners giving up the locations of machine gun nests, the Germans were eliminated one nest at a time. A flanking attack from Telma Farm put additional pressure on the Germans in the citadel, and they finally cracked. The Germans were cleared from the heights above Grand Pré, and the resulting push saw the Doughboys advance northward into the Bois de Bourgogne over the last week of October. It came at a heavy price. Between entering the line on 16th October to the end of that month, the division would lose 4,200 men from its two infantry brigades, a third of its overall fighting strength. But the 78th had cracked the western end of the Stellung, tearing another hole in the German line. Further east in the fifth Corps sector, 89th Division moved up to relieve the now worn out 32nd Red Arrow Division. The 89th, a draft division made up of men from Arizona, Colorado, Kansas, Missouri, Nebraska, New Mexico, and South Dakota, had seen combat in the Samiel attack, and while holding the line in the same sector afterwards, Throughout September 1918 and into October, the division had taken some 3,000 casualties, and just before entering the Meuse argonne 2,000 new replacements were received to refill the ranks. Reconnoitering the sector where his men would be fighting, Division Commander Major General William Wright remarked in his diary later that, quote, "...the entire country, for about 10 kilometers, was nothing but a mass of trenches." Wire and the roads, seas of mud. Everything was impossible. End quote. The 32nd was fully relieved by the 20th of October, and the 89th took over the fight for Bois de Bentheville. Bentheville village is located about one and a half kilometers north of Romagna-sous-Montfaucon, and the Bois. Of the same name, sits to the immediate west of it, about a kilometer away. The Bois de Benteville is a rather large tract of forest with hills and draws inside it, and there is a logger's path that bisects the wood through the middle. The bottom half of the tract is called Bois de Chauvignon. When the 89th took over the line on the 20th, much of the Bois de Benteville was already in American hands, The woefully incomplete German fourth position, the Freierstellung, ran parallel to and just beyond the northern edge of the wood. It's been a while since we mentioned it, but the Freie line was basically the Germans' line of panic, as that was their absolute last-ditch means of concerted resistance. Beyond that scratch in the dirt, there was little to nothing. After the Doughboys had taken the Côte de Châtillon, the Côte de Marie, and Romagna village, the Germans scrambled to halt any further American progress. From Rex Cochran's Chemical Warfare Studies monograph titled The 89th Division in the Bois de Bantheville, October 1918, we have an order from the German 13th Division reiterating this point. Quote, The forests of Bantheville require special attention. An advance here by the enemy must be stopped at the first line. As soon as the weather permits, the engagement of the enemy artillery with all means, balloon and plane observation, will be carried out. Since the enemy manages his munitioning with trucks, harassing of enemy supply roads is particularly important. Defensive fire must mainly be used in concentrated annihilation fire on the bois de Banteville and the ravines where the ready positions of the enemy are to be expected." End quote. Annihilation fire, from a reading of Cochrane's works, appears to be when all guns in a German unit would fire together on a fixed line. The objective, of course, is in the name of the process, annihilation fire, and the effect was likely that of trommelfeuer or drum fire, hellish stuff. The plans went above just those of the German 13th Division. From Cochrane's monograph, quote, the next day, Group Vest ordered the 13th and 123rd divisions to concentrate their artillery fire on the Bois de Banteville. The 13th Division artillery command, Arco Dreizen, was to prepare a firing plan for systematic coverage of the woods and adjoining strong points. The sector was divided by a fire protection line in front of the forward positions of the 13th Division, feuerschutz and another in front of its main line of resistance, Feuerschutz-Kurz. With right, left, and center zones, with the subsequent loss of the Bois de Bantheville, these fire lines remained drawn through the wood. End quote. Two German divisions, the 13th and the 3rd Guards Division, held the sectors responsible for the wood. It was a confused relief in the Bois de Bantheville. The wood was largely in American hands, yet time and again recently cleared areas were reoccupied by the Germans or retaken by them. The wood and its immediate surroundings became another swirling firestorm of combat as the relatively fresh doughboys of the 89th fought to clear and hold the woods once and for all. The 20th of October saw heavy fighting as the Americans carefully cleared the woods, machine gun nest by foxhole by machine gun nest. It was hard going. These woods were not in such a shattered state like high in Delville woods on the Somme, so it was easier for Germans to lay low and wait for the doughboys to pass by. Enfilade fire and fire from the rear took many Americans down and caused them to have to double back. What had been thought to be a job for individual platoons actually required battalions. At night, the Germans kept a curtain... Of high explosive shells and gas through the middle of the wood, ensuring that resupply of units north of that line would be nearly impossible. On the other side of the wire was a German unit named Infanterie Regiment Prinz Friedrich der Niederlande, Zweite Westfälische Nummer 15. And thanks to the efforts of a member of Randy Galky's Mirzargon Facebook page, we have the translation of several pages of this regiment's post-war history. The accounts highlight the alarming manpower situation many German units were facing at this point in the war. Quote, We expected further attacks on 22nd October. Our commanders foresaw major problems because all our forces were deployed. Only a weak part with a light machine gun was in lager clarus as a reserve. This was the only group we had. There was nothing more. We had a quiet day, but at 1,500 hours, the Americans attacked. Their great amount of numbers pushed our right flank back, further back, 6th and 7th Company, into the forest. Our last small reserve attacked under the personal command of the regimental commander. 1st Leutnant von Doring. On 22nd October, again strong attacks after furious artillery fire. On our left, the enemy managed to succeed. A big fighting mess was created. We can observe this from our foxhole. When we see some soldiers pull back, we now know things are going wrong. We collect all remaining men and make a counterattack to stop the movement. Major Severin with a stick is up front. This is working. Our soldiers get new courage. The so promising Americans are running when they can. We see them disappear very fast into their old line. We rearrange our line and troops. The situation is stabilized again. Our strength was three officers and 15 men. The higher command was very pleased. Major Severin was nominated for the Pour les Merites. This brave attack had rescued the situation at a critical point, but it could not change the overall situation, so the front had to retreat again. Also, the manpower of the companies were in bad shape. Leutnants Becker and Gur were wounded. Leutnant Korlemmer had been killed. For the fighting in the Bois de Banteville, Leutnant Schwenk received the Iron Cross First Class for extreme bravery. From HQ came the order to retreat in the darkness and hold the Freya line. This line was behind the north side of the Bois de Banteville and went in a west-east direction. On the spot, you could not find a prepared line, but only an indicated line. The enemy followed, as usual, always gently groping, and reached the road banteville cremonville during the night of 22 to 23 October, 1st Battalion and parts of 2nd Battalion were replaced by Guard Regiment 109, and in the coming night, 2nd Battalion and the rest of 3rd Battalion by Infantry Regiment 13. They were put on reserve at the south edge of the Bois de Andevan. There, the survivors of the three companies of each battalion were put into one company. End quote. On the twenty second elements of the American three hundred fifty fourth and three hundred fifty third infantry regiments had attacked again, methodically clearing the woods after a seesaw battle. The last groups of Germans in the woods were eliminated by the morning of the twenty third Other groups of Germans were seen retreating towards Ledouis farm to the northwest of the woods. It was during the fight for the Bois de Banteville that a doughboy of B Company, 355th Infantry Regiment, again made a name for himself. Marcelino Serna, a Mexican-born immigrant worker, had volunteered for the U.S. Army when war was declared in 1917. He was in France before his unit realized he wasn't even a citizen of the country whose uniform he was wearing. Offered a discharge, Serna refused. Working as a scout, Serna had distinguished himself in combat during the San Miguel offensive by single-handedly clearing a German machine gun nest, killing six Germans and capturing another eight. Accounts of Serna's actions get confusing online, as they state that just two weeks after Serna's clearing of the San Miguel machine gun nest on September 12th, he was back in action in the Meuse-Argonne, Two weeks after September 12th would be the 26th, the first day of the Meurs-Argonne campaign. And of course, the 89th Division wouldn't be committed to battle until the 20th of October. By referencing the ABMC summary of operations for the 89th, the best I can guesstimate is that the following account took place around the 21st of October, when Serna's 355th Regiment was in action. From the El Paso Community College website, we have Serna's own words on what happened. Quote, Serna recounted another battle to El Paso Times reporter Bill Birch during his 1962 interview. During a second scouting mission at Merz Serna captured 24 German soldiers with his Enfield rifle and grenades. I saw a sniper walking on a trench bank and wounded him from about 200 yards away. I followed his trail into a trench and heard some German soldiers talking. I saw four of them and started shooting. I got three of them. With the rest of the Germans out, Serna changed positions often, fooling the enemy into thinking several men were attacking them. About 45 minutes later, Serna was close enough to throw grenades at the enemy. They ran into the dugout and I lobbed three grenades into it right behind them, said Serna. They came out with their hands up. I captured 24 and about 26 were killed in action. I herded them into a tight group with a 45 automatic in one hand and a Luger, which I had picked up in the other. After a few minutes I was able to fire an SOS flare and my buddies came to help me. Marcelino Serna would receive the Distinguished Service Cross for his actions but in recent years, there has been an as-yet-unsuccessful push to upgrade the award to the Congressional Medal of Honor. The 89th Division suffered some 1,500 casualties while fighting to clear and hold the Bois de Banthaville. It would continue holding the line and would be participating in the next 1st Army-wide attack. Other attacks continued along the AEF front, and along with it, the fighting and the dying. To the right of the 89th, the tough hombres of the 90th Division would attack and seize Bantheville Village itself. To their right, the depleted 3rd Division would attack the Bois de Clerchens and Hill 299 on the 20th of October. The 7th Infantry Regiment had to attack with three companies from the six engineers. It was so under strength. It was another fistfight in the woods, with the battle lines shifting throughout the breadth of the wood. In the end, the doughboys, engineers, and infantry, struggling together, took the Bois de Clairchen. Wounded in the day's battle for this small corner of France was Private Gust Holden, a 20-year-old native of Cyrus, Minnesota. Born Olaf Gustav Ferdinand Holden, in October 1898, Gust was 19 when he volunteered for the U.S. Army in April 1918. His two older brothers, Carl and Martin, had already been drafted nearly a year before. Gust's training in 1918 had been far more rushed than his brothers, and just two months after enlisting, he was in France and a replacement soldier in the 3rd Division. Gust's wound was in his left leg and it was serious enough that he was evacuated far to the rear to a U.S. Army base hospital hundreds of miles away. On November 7, 1918, four days from an armistice that many knew were coming, Gus Holden succumbed to his wounds. His 20th birthday had been just 27 days before. We could say it was just another day on the front, just another day behind the front, treating the wounded and dying, But it was not. That day, yet another world, another whole world, another promising young life, was cut short to the folly and failure that is warfare. So, with what we hope is appropriate respect, we speak his name once more. Olaf Gustav Ferdinand Holden. As with the fighting and dying, the misery continued all along the front as well. It was October in France, and this was a particularly rainy autumn. It rained nearly constantly. Temperatures were low and getting lower every day as the long march towards winter went on. Weeks of exposure and poor cold food weakened doughboys to diseases like dysentery. The flu pandemic by this time was another enemy on the battlefield although this one scythed down both American and German with not a care. Thousands of doughboys were being felled by the flu, and it was killing many of them. Wet clothes, poor food, disease, the flu, the cold, the artillery, and the anxiety. Private Connell Albertine of the U.S. 104th Infantry Regiment 26th Division stated that, Most of us were scared stiff, to the point that some of the boys had diarrhea. I had diarrhea too, and because of the constant shelling could not stop and go, and so it just came out, trickled down, and lodged at my knees. Because of the wrapped leggings that were wrapped from our ankles to our knees, the stool just stayed put. Soon we could all smell this stool odor from each other, There was nothing in this experience to be ashamed of because it happened to all of us and it didn't make any difference whether you were an officer or an enlisted man, but we were all reluctant to talk about it. While resting in a small gully, some of us took the spoons from our mess kits and, lowering our breeches, tried to scoop up the stool from around our knees for besides the odor, it was very uncomfortable, end quote. The 26th Yankee Division, a National Guard division composed of units from New England, was one of the first four divisions to get to France in 1917. The nature of its deployment to the French theater of operations testified to the nature of the unit and its commander. The commander of the 26th, Major General Clarence Daddy Edwards, was loved fiercely by his troops because he took care of them and was not afraid of stirring the political pot that was the AEF officer cadre. Hell, he was a guy who would even kick that proverbial pot. At West Point and beyond, Edwards was known for that old prison rule of establishing dominance. He would apparently beat up the biggest guy he could find in front of everyone else. The 26th Division's deployment to France is in itself a wild tale Major General Edwards simply marched his division to the docks and put them on ships designated for another division, without orders. Well, his men were here, and they were ready, he reasoned to the dock officials. And wasn't the point of the ships to take troops overseas? So why not take these men? If that was done today, well, it just wouldn't be. It's unthinkable that today's Army or Marine officers would do that But in the AEF, that was really just another Tuesday. Quick note, following our discussion of his book to the last man, Jonathan Bratton and I had a fantastic and sadly unrecorded conversation regarding the upper echelons of AEF leadership. Jonathan mentioned that someone should write a book on the politics and personalities of the AEF command, particularly as it relates to the small West Point world that produced many of them. I think it would be a hell of a book. But coming back to the 26th, these New England soldiers were like their Revolutionary War ancestors. They would indeed fight, but they would fight their own way and knowing why they were fighting. They were veterans, having been on the Chemin des Dames, the Saint-Miel sector twice. It was the 26th that had suffered the German raid at saint in April 1918, and it had also fought in the summer battles of the Marne. The 26th was coming into the Meuse understrength, tired, and unliked. Major General Edwards was no favorite of Pershing. The 26th had yet to perform to Pershing standard as well, so the dislike of Edwards descended to his division. The Yankee division entered one of the more physically hellish sectors of the Meuse, part of the 1916 Verdun battlefield on the right bank of the river. Captain Bain Jones of the 103rd Infantry Regiment wrote that, quote, The ground is all torn up by shells and old bones, skeletons, Bosch boots with feet and leg bones sticking out of them, old casks, cartridges, belts, rifle barrels, tin cans and trench refuse show how they lived and died in those battles. No one can describe these sights to you except your own eyes." In the Meuse-Argonne, the why of attacking the Meuse Heights was to draw German reserves away from the 5th and 3rd Corps, thus further weakening the lines there. Assigned to the French 18th Division d'Infanterie, 18th Infantry Division, the 104th Infantry went right into an attack as soon as it entered the front line, looking to push the Germans into the ravines beyond the Bois d'Aumont. 15 French tanks assisted. In short order, the Germans disabled or destroyed 14 of the 15 tanks, and the advancing doughboys were stopped cold by a wall of heavy artillery and machine gun fire. No ground was gained, and the survivors had to pull back to their jump-off line. As the 26th Division relieved the French 18th DI, the attacks continued. We'll quote here from Jonathan Bratton's book, To the Last Man. Quote, on 23 October, the 26th Division made its last large-scale offensive movement. The 51st Brigade was to assault Belleau Bois, no relation to the Belleau Wood of Second Marne fame, and Hill 360 beyond it in conjunction with French assaults on the left. They were facing the 1st Lanvers Division, which counted 112 heavy machine guns and 216 light machine guns the Yankees were attacking a wall of machine guns. The 101st and 102nd Infantry Regiments began their assaults on 23 October, making considerable gains. In severe fighting through 26 October, the 51st Brigade took and lost Belleau Bois four times. German concrete positions defeated the repeated efforts of 26th Division artillery to knock them out, while German artillery and minenwerfer fire pounded the 101st and 102nd Infantry regiments in their forward positions. On 27 October, the 51st Brigade made one last push, taking and holding the Belleau Bois, but was unable to take Hill 360. The division took 3,800 casualties in these days of fighting. The division was nearing its breaking point. The 51st Brigade was a hollow shell from four days of attacks that wore its already thin ranks practically threadbare. In a move that shocked the beleaguered Yankee division, Major General Edwards was relieved by Pershing on 20 October. His orders were to go back to the United States to take on a training role. He remained in place until 24 October, when Brigadier General Frank Bamford arrived to replace him, literally handing over the division when it was in action. It had been a terrible month for Edwards, receiving the news of the death of his only child, Bessie, to influenza while she was serving as an army nurse in Washington, D.C. His aide, Captain Simpkins, also succumbed to influenza and died before the general could reach his bedside. The relief of their beloved commander, combined with no replacements, terrible weather, influenza, and constant bombardment left the Yankee division with little fighting spirit. There was a spike in psychological cases in October, men simply breaking down under the strains of prolonged combat. The division inspector reported at the end of October that the men were all-in, shell-shy, and mentally and physically exhausted. He noted that the men were in a depressed state of mind and suffering from both nervous and physical fatigue. The 51st Brigade was on the verge of collapse, he warned. On 27 October, the 101st Infantry could only count 435 effectives, while the 102nd Infantry only mustered 383 men on the front lines. Despite this, the 26th Division stayed on the front. End quote. Warfare is brutal and exhausting to the soldiers who make it, and the battles of the Great War were no exception. From the heights above Grand Pre to the woods near Banteville and Cunelle and onto the battered and shattered hills of the Bois d'Ormont and Bois de Homont, the Doughboys had once again received an impossible task, and they'd done it. Further bloody chunks of the daunting Krimhilde Stelling position had been ripped from Germany's living wall, and the front was prepared for General Hunter Liggett's next plan. Questions, comments, or concerns, please don't hesitate to contact me at VerdunPodcast at gmail.com. Get at me on Twitter at, at WW1 Podcast. Check out the BFWWP website, firstworldwarpodcast.com, for some photos. And check out the Battles of the First World War podcast page on the Facebook. Thank you so much for listening. Talk to you again soon. Take care.